Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. I think you'll make a fine addition to our army. Stuart. Oh, Charles. I like this one. And Arnie. Don't you know who I am? I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. Who will you stand with? The humans or us? Culminating in a weekend of release review of the newest X-Men film, X-Men First Class. They will never, ever forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men The Last Stand, starring Hugh Jackman, who has gone from a nobody to top build, Halle Berry, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Famke Jensen, Anna Paquin, Kelsey Grammer, James Marsden, Rebecca Romaine, no Stamos, and Ellen Page, directed by Brett Ratner. I'm Arnie. I'm the best there is at what I do, and what I do is review movies. Stuart in L.A. I wish I had come up with a clever little X-Power. I'm nothing. I guess I have to do the obvious one. I'm Jacob, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are directing Brett Ratner's X-Men. Yeah, lots changed since the last X2. Things seem to be going so well. We were all saying, wow, Singer's got more monies, more control. There's more going on. It's definitely his baby now. And now we got a third one. And he took most of his production crew and left for Superman. Yeah, I can't believe it. But like I said in the last podcast, everyone had two picture deals. And I remember reading some of the trades around this time. Things were acrimonious between Singer and Fox. And it ended up with Singer saying, I'm going to go do Superman. And they said, fine, go do it. (laughs) And instead, they went with Matthew Vaughn, who then dropped out after some pre-production. And at the last minute, Brett Ratner came in. Matthew Vaughn, of course, who did Kick-Ass and is now doing X-Men First Class. Yeah, it's kind of funny how how that happens. You walk away from something and then you end up a couple years later doing it anyway. But I guess lessons learned. He was doing what, Stardust? other projects, it didn't seem like a good deal to come into a project this chaotic, this already well-established. It was a mess. At this point, Fox is very vigilant about keeping the deadlines, which is why we're going to get first class June 5th, whether they're done making it or not. They are going to put it out on the date because that's the way that they operate. And it's rare that they will actually push back a release date. And that was the deal. We need a director that can produce. Whether it's good or not, it would be great if it's good, but we need them to produce 
produce a finished film <laughs> by this date. And Bratner was up for the job. Now, I don't have a lot of baggage with Bratner, good or bad. I have not seen any of his works with the exception of Red Dragon. I feel like he's often lumped with other music video veteran guys. I think McGee, Michael Bay. He has the association of being someone that cares about explosions more than characters. But that hasn't been my experience. And truly, hearing that he's stepping in for Brian Singer didn't mean a whole lot to me. But it did mean that probably was going to have a different feel and a different take than what we had been building towards in the last two movies. I knew Brett Ratner from Money Talks, which I found terrible. And the first two Rush Hour films, and I had seen Red Dragon, though I don't think I ever knew he had directed that one. But I was a fan of Rush Hour and Rush Hour 2. I found them amusing. I found two to be far inferior to one. But honestly, after Ratner turned in two films that I felt were solid, but actually I appreciated both times more re-watching them than I did the original watching, I was happy Singer wasn't there. I was happy to get it into Ratner's hands. I felt like he did some great action with Jackie Chan in the Rush Hour films. I was really looking forward to seeing a more action-oriented X-Men that hopefully also kept some good story and... I was excited by this. I think I was one of the few who was like, yes, it's not Brian Singer. Because by this point, I was sick of Singer. I'm not a real director guy where, oh, I'm going to go see this because of a certain director. I don't really keep up on that most of the time. I did hear that this was more of an action-oriented X-Men, which I was excited for. First two were fine, but they fought a giant magnet and a handicapped guy. I was ready for some (laughs) action, some good old comic book, blow-it-up action for an X-Men film. And let's face it, this is the last stand. They mean it here. Fox knew going into this project, there was not going to be a fourth one like it. The cast had gotten too bloated. There was way too many characters. They couldn't strike deals. There's just too expensive to keep doing it. So they knew this was going to be the last whole team together movie. It was going to be a big blowout. It had to go out with a bang before they started spinning them off into solo projects and origin movies. That was the thought as they went into X3. Of course, after this they went into the X-Men Origins Wolverine. They talked about X-Men Origins Magneto. And this was the talk that was had like the moment this movie came out too. It didn't take them a long time to figure it out. That said, that wasn't necessarily what I was expecting going in. Of course, obviously I had read that Halle Berry only agreed to return if her role would be substantially increased. She had an Oscar at this point. She didn't need the silly movie or Catwoman. (laughs) Yeah, she's too good for this. She could be Catwoman or Jinx. Thank you very much. She's going to treat this like the sequel to Flintstones. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. I'm just saying, she's got a knack for picking projects. Don't bite the hand that feeds you, Storm. This may be your shining moment other than Monsters Ball. And I was really excited because, as we mentioned last podcast, Phoenix... Now, I've never read the Phoenix Saga, but it's so legendary in comics, I feel like I have. It's kind of like the jaws of comic books for me. And you know what? Even I got educated in the movie theater and by people that were versed in the universe that this was going to be a major storyline. It sounded crazy. The way they were talking with aliens and all of this, I was just like, aliens? Really? I-, I didn't know what to expect going into this movie, but I thought it was going to be the last one of the whole team. It was very, very expensive and it was rushed. They had far less time than they probably needed to deliver a movie and could Brett Ratner be the craftsman to pull 
pull it all together, not even knowing the series or having been there for the first two. It was the real question mark. I didn't doubt his abilities as a director. I doubted anyone's ability to be able to step in the last minute with this time frame and deliver the conclusion that they had been working so diligently towards. And no pressure. It's just a huge franchise and the most expensive film ever made. Was this really the most expensive film made at this point? <laughs> it was, indeed. At that, point. Where did the money go? Because it didn't come off as the most expensive film ever made. Well, let's see. Oscar winner Halle Berry, Sir Patrick Stewart. Hugh Jackman. <laughs> did I mention the fact that they were not going to do another one? <laughs> 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 yes, it had just ballooned too much. It's amazing that we even got this one together, but... I I think that they felt like they owed the fans one more movie and they thought that they could reap the profits back. But there's just no way they could sustain this cast going forward. So there is a very conclusive quality to all the story arcs in this movie. There is not too much left open to explore in anything else. This is The Last Stand. It's aptly named, if nothing else. That said, on the commentary, they do talk about the possibility of returning so they hadn't closed the door completely then and in fact even with some of the first class type stuff they say that they're already looking at making x-men 4 next not first class 2 well that's first class and we'll get there in a couple weeks arnie how about you run down what happens in the last stand in the short time since the events of X-Men 2, mutants have started to be accepted by much of human society, with the President of the United States even having a cabinet position, the Secretary of Mutant Affairs, a position held by the super-intelligent mutant Hank McCoy, codenamed Beast for his blue fur and extreme agility, played by erstwhile Fraser Kelsey Grammer. However, despite this progress, mutant bigotry is alive and well, and scientist Warren Worthington Jr., ashamed of his son, Warren Worthington III's mutation that gives him giant white wings, has developed what he considers a cure to mutation. The cure was created using the DNA of a mutant boy named Jimmy, codenamed Leech, whose mutant power is the ability to sap mutants in close proximity. One injection of this serum turns mutants into normal human beings. And despite promises to the contrary, the police guarding dangerous mutants start carrying pistols armed with cure darts. And when Magneto and his new henchman, former X-Man Pyro, attempt to liberate a number of new mutants from police captivity, Mystique is shot with one of the cure darts, turning her into a normal human. Well, not quite normal. She is more sexy than 99.9% .9 of the population. So, an exceptionally sexy human? And Magneto leaves her behind as she's now a regular-ish human. And he has more new henchmen, including the juggernaut Kane Marco, played by Vinnie Jones, a mutant who, when in motion, can't be stopped. Then there's multiple man James Madrox, played by Eric Dane, who can replicate himself many times over. And Magneto also has a group of follower mutants called the Omegas, a tattooed underground society of mutants who join up with Magneto to stage a violent opposition to the cure. The discovery of the cure likewise sends shockwaves through Professor Xavier's school, where mutants such as Rogue consider taking the cure. Rogue's mutation prevents her from touching or kissing her boyfriend Bobby Iceman Drake, and her physical alienation is slowly driving Bobby into the arms of of Kitty Pride, a mutant with the ability to walk through walls, played by Ellen Page. In addition to the cure, the X-Men are still reeling from the death of Jean Grey. Hit especially hard was Jean's fiancé Cyclops, who is tormented by what seem to be psychic assaults from Jean. Traveling to Alkali Lake, the site of Jean's death, Cyclops is shocked to see Jean seemingly alive and well, and more powerful than ever. And with a kiss, Jean disintegrates Cyclops, something the psychic Professor X feels telepathically. Retrieving Jean from the lake and bringing her back to the mansion, Xavier reveals to Wolverine, who was the third point in the Cyclops-Jean Grey-Logan love triangle, 
Triangle that Jean Grey was the most powerful mutant ever, and as a child, she was unable to control her own powers, so Xavier used his telepathy to hide Jean's power from herself. But in doing so, he created a split personality. There was the kind Jean Grey who we saw in the past two movies who didn't have a whole lot of psychic power, but then there's the Dark Phoenix who is all raw passion, emotion, anger, and power. In the face of a watery death, the Phoenix personality was released in Jean, and the Phoenix can barely keep her power under control. Magneto and Xavier both try to recruit Phoenix to their side, and in a huge battle, Phoenix disintegrates Professor X and goes to join Magneto's fight against the Cure. The X-Men reel from the loss of their leader, and many of the students leave the school. Rogue leaves to go take the Cure, but when it's revealed Magneto and his mutant army are about to attack Alcatraz, the former prison now having been turned into a lab where mutants are cured, and Magneto's intent is to kill Leech and stop the Cure's creation, the remaining X-Men of Iceman, Kitty Pride, Beast, Wolverine, Storm, and Peter Colossus Rasputin, a tall, strong mutant whose skin can turn to metal armor, go to Alcatraz to stop the evil mutants. In a huge ending fight, Pyro and Iceman get their face off with Iceman victorious, Kitty Pride and Juggernaut have it out with Kitty winning, but Magneto is so dangerous that Wolverine, Beast, and Colossus team up, Colossus and Wolverine distracting Magneto while Beast jumps in from behind, injecting Magneto with the cure. Seeing the cure used as a weapon, Phoenix tries to kill everyone, atomizing humans and evil mutants alike, though strangely the X-Men are spared. Except for Wolverine, who Phoenix tries to atomize, but his healing ability continues to regenerate him, and with a declaration of love, Wolverine stabs Jean in the stomach with his claws, killing her to save the world. And in the aftermath, we see Rogue, now a normal human and able to hold hands with Bobby, Storm taking the leadership role in the school, Wolverine seemingly content to hang around the school as well, and Magneto, who may or may not be as powerless as we are led to believe as credits roll. But after credits roll, we get one more scene in Scotland where Dr. Moira McTaggart is caring for a comatose patient who wakes up and in Xavier's voice says, Hello, Moira. And Moira responds, Charles? I hope you guys are going to be able to explain that because me and Mrs. Utami did not get it at all. <laughs> An Aliens versus Predator Requiem reference. Nice. <laughs> Check our archives. It's there. I still don't get it. Well, it's in the movie, but we will talk about it as we get there. So this is supposedly Gene's story, right? Like, that's what everything that I had been gotten the impression would be that this is about Gene. And indeed, the first scenes of this movie, it's all about her loss, that Scott's crying and Wolverine's depressed. And yet, that's not really the major storyline here. I would say 80% of the movie is a different plot entirely. Why did they make that choice? I can't imagine. I don't know. I listened to the commentaries. Jacob, maybe you can shed some light. I really went into this movie expecting it to be the Phoenix Saga, and instead, isn't it kind of a retread of the last one where, again, a child's genetic fluid is used with the intent of exterminating all mutants? What did we miss about the Dark Phoenix storyline that was so epic? Because if this was the greatest thing that ever was in comic books, I don't get it. They didn't want to shoot an X-Men film in space. If they wanted to stick to the comic book, it's a space saga. I mean, the Phoenix is this cosmic godlike force that binds with Jean Grey. It's like already described in the summary. It's pure id, this creative force that could also destroy. And it's all about Jean Grey as the Phoenix. She destroys an entire solar system out in outer space. She's deemed more powerful than Galactus. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, Stuart. It will this summer. 
<laughs> yes. But that means something to Arnie. Galactus is space god that eats planets. She could destroy an entire solar system. So these space aliens decide she needs to be killed because she's too dangerous. She's too powerful. It ends up being this epic fight between X-Men and these aliens. Will Jean live? Will she die? She ends up sacrificing herself once again because she would rather die as a human than live as a god. And you're not going to get that in this film. This isn't a space saga. They had to change it to put it on Earth to go along with the story that they had already been telling. Yeah, the big reveal here is that Professor X has more or less caged Gene, and people respond to it in different ways. Magneto and Wolverine both see it as a betrayal that Professor X did something horrible by creating a split personality in which she is both Gene and Phoenix, and that Phoenix is kind of like in the back of her mind, tucked away, hopefully never to be open. Pandora's box, if you will. That's not how it's played in the comic book then. Well, no, after she becomes the Phoenix, Xavier does try to cage that side of her into her brain because they see how powerful it is. I mean, there are those elements in there. Okay. But no, there's not this whole story about a leech and ways to cure mutants. I mean, that's taken from other storylines, but no, that's not part of the Phoenix Saga. I mean, the Phoenix Saga is very much about Gene and what do you do with this person who has godlike powers but can't control them and can destroy entire solar systems. You know, with the whole walling off of the Phoenix persona, I have to say right here, I liked this. I liked that this movie is about dealing with moral ambiguity. I felt like the last two were kind of dealing with oppression and bigotry. This one kind of goes deeper, and it's all about kind of moral choices and the shades of gray that kind of determine. And Professor X's choice to do this to Gene is one of those, where you can see his point, right? But by the same token... Is that the right thing to do? And I like that this movie raises those questions because I believe good fiction should ask questions, not give answers. And I like that you get this scene at the beginning where Professor X and Magneto, before they were those characters, when they're much younger, some great CGI effects there to de-age mm. them a bit. Xavier's still walking around. And did you notice Stan Lee cameo? There you go. Yes, on the front lawn, watching his water go up in the air because of Jean Grey. And a less obvious one, Chris Claremont cameo. You know, despite the fact that Stan Lee created the X-Men and everybody's like, oh, Stan Lee, Stan Lee, Chris Claremont's the one who made the X-Men good. <laughs> Yeah, the X-Men weren't a big hit originally. It didn't last very long. A lot of the issues were reprints of older ones, and it was Claremont in the 70s that really revived them and kind of rebooted it. He created most of the new characters, too. Yeah, a lot of the new X-Men all came from him. The Phoenix Saga that we've been talking about all came from him. He was mowing his lawn. I did catch this one. I actually said, hey, that's Stan Lee. I didn't see it in the first one, and I did not see him in the second one. Where was he in the second one? He wasn't in the second one. That must be why I didn't see him. And it shocked me, too, because I was looking for it, because I'm like, gotta look for the Stan Lee cameo. Apparently, when that was being filmed, he was asked if he was going to do cameos in all the films, and he's like, no, I'll probably just appear in the first film of each franchise for each superhero, and that's about it. He didn't want to do anything else, but that rule got quickly thrown out the window, as you'll be hearing throughout these Marvel podcast. And he wasn't in the first Blade. Is Blade not good enough for Stan? <laughs> Was he in any of the Blades? <laughs> he didn't create Blade, though, did he? It's a Marvel property, though. I mean, he is Marvel. Is he like the Alfred Hitchcock of Marvel? He's just got to do a cameo whenever they make a movie? I didn't see him in Swamp Thing, God bless the man. <laughs> <laughs> But Professor X and Magneto, they approach Jean Grey as a little girl to talk to her. And what I find interesting, Magneto's all about 
mutants be mutants and you know you're out and you're proud as a mutant where xavier takes this more pacifist approach but he's very aggressive with gene he's trying to suppress her mutant powers and not let her be the most so i i thought it's an interesting way to again illustrate those different approaches to this mutant issue and, and what do you do with it it almost seems like reversal here where xavier's taking a, a much more proactive approach a much more aggressive approach when usually you're used to him taking the passive approach Well, the whole idea of a mutant school would be to help them develop their powers. Now, I had a question. There's all this talk about what level they're at, whether they're a class three or a class five or or whatever. Is that something that he can help you achieve? Do you want to scale the ranks or are just some people born more talented than others with their powers? I took it as a birth thing. Yeah, it's a birth thing. Sometimes you're stuck being a toad and sometimes you get godlike powers. It's all in the DNA. No way for Toad to become the phoenix. <laughs> I guess the lightning was the best thing then, really. But it is a real shocker to think that here's someone that develops minds who's actually, in this case, is a stunting one. And it got me thinking that if Jean Grey was supposed to be his successor, if she's, in fact, Professor X, or in training, is he doing it for self-serving reasons? I gotta say, it did actually have me questioning how much I should trust Professor X anymore. If it were not Patrick Stewart, I probably would have a lot more doubts about him. It does give him a new wrinkle. It gives him a new dimension. Well, as we said last podcast, I think of the three of us, you're the only one who saw Gene as the heir apparent. It's even called out in this movie. It was Cyclops until Halle Berry got an Oscar. (laughs) Yes. So, but beyond that, the thing about Xavier is he could force the whole world to like mutants. He chooses not to. He could stop Magneto with a thought. He chooses not to. So what was it about Jean that makes her more dangerous than Magneto causing anarchy by killing all the world leaders? Well, I guess he was kind of out of consciousness for that. Maybe he would have made that choice then. But still, it seems very convenient for the story and not well explained. In the hint at that, early on, there is a uh, mutant ethics lesson where he's asking students that very thing. When is it okay to read minds? When it is okay to use your mutant powers? And when do you be respectful and just allow people their own space? It's an interesting quandary. And unfortunately, they never come back to that lesson. We never actually hear how Professor X weighs in on it. Possibly because they don't have answers themselves. But I said in our very first X-Men podcast, I always kind of thought of Professor X as being a little bit of a dick, kind of a holier-than-thou, Machiavellian kind of person. The way Patrick Stewart portrays him here, where he won't even have the discussion with Wolverine, he's like, I had to make that choice, so end of discussion. I've made up my mind. That's far more the Professor X I'm used to than kindly old Patrick Stewart. Yeah, he's full-on dick mode in this movie, especially towards Wolverine. It's like... Yeah, I got that sense too, Arnie. He is not the kindly grandfather that he was in the first X-Men film. Well, Wolverine's emotionally invested. Of course, he has a thing for Jean, even though she's Scott's girl. He kind of wants in on that, and we have some of that still residual playing over here. He doesn't like the fact that anyone would have been holding Jean back. He doesn't understand how dangerous Phoenix really is until he gets to the last stand. Well, also, Wolverine was someone that was manipulated himself. He's had his mind messed with, too. He doesn't remember his 
his past. He was part of mutant experiments. So I think he identifies with Gene and that's why he holds something against Xavier because he kind of did that same kind of experimentation on her where he was holding her back or changing her mind, just like what happened to him. Interesting. But of course, we find out pretty early on why Professor X was in the right side of this moral uncertainty when Scott and Gene uh, reconnect at the lake. Can I just say, again, you guys keep claiming Cyclops is this leader in training. I have never had any use for this character. And when she kisses him and blows him to bits, I just thought, wow, you are the most worthless X-Men in this whole series. <laughs> Three movies, and you have done nothing but be pussy whipped and then blown away by your chick. I mean, really. And then he would go off, you know, he's barely in the movie because he was actually shooting Superman Returns simultaneously. He played the same pussy whipped character over there of being like Lois Lane's wannabe humanoid boyfriend who gets pushed aside for Superman. I mean, this guy is just a chump. I feel bad for him because he is nothing but a tool. Well, let's face it. James Marsden lucked out with this cast and by apparently being friends with Singer to get over on Superman. I was watching this horrible, horrible movie called Sex Drive. Just this stupid American Pie wannabe raunch comedy. And Marsden is in it, and it's not a cameo. It's a job. It was the role he could get. Stuart, you keep bringing up Star Wars analogy. I guess he really is the Mark Hamill of the cast. You know, mm. Jackman goes on to become huge, and then there's Marsden mm-hmm. off to the side there. Yeah, I mean, they don't even kill him on screen. It's an off-screen kill. <laughs> that pissed me off so much, I cannot put into words. And because it's an off-screen kill, and we never see a body, the first time I watched this movie, I'm like, he's gonna come back. Yeah, isn't that the whole thing in comics? They're not dead unless there's a body. And even if there's a body, they're probably not dead. But there's got to be a body. So I totally agree with you, Arnie. I'm expecting it to pop up at the end or at some point because there's not a body. It means he's still alive. And honestly, I think they would have delivered that scene if they could. I think he gave them like a day or a couple days. I think he was really on set for less than a week. And they just didn't have time for a complicated special effects shot. That They did what they could. And he gave them what he was willing to. And we get it. We finally eventually understand that he's dead when we see the glasses floating around there. I still wondered until you see a body. I mean, it was his glasses, but I still wondered if he'd show back up. I couldn't believe they would take the leader of the X-Men and just kill him like that. Well, that won't be the last death (laughs) that will surprise you. (laughs) No, no, but it was the one that angered me the most. I feel like he's just warming up Brett Ratner here. I feel like he's just getting started in peering down this cast. Here's what's sad, though, is out of three movies, his three minutes on screen were, I think, James Marsden's best performance. I liked him in this one. I liked him with the unshaven look and the brokenness. I thought it was so much more interesting than what Cyclops had been the past two movies. Vaguely. Maybe a shade more. I just don't think he's that interesting to begin with. And Arnie, I don't think his off-screen death angered me. I just thought it was bad movie storytelling. It's just, you don't do that. It, either you come back or you're dead and you show the death. I mean, I wasn't angered by it, but I thought it was just bad storytelling. I was angered. All three of these X-Men films have angered me in some way, and usually... <laughs> It's about how badly Cyclops is treated. I'm not even a Cyclops fan. <laughs> yeah, what is your boner for Cyclops? <laughs> I'm not even that big of a fan of his, but I just keep feeling like you get hired to portray the leader of the X-Men, and you're never on screen. Yeah, you keep saying he's the leader, but clearly it's Hallie's house now. Hold on now. Here's how Cyclops gets shafted again. In addition to getting killed way too early and off screen, there's a scene with Professor X walking down with Hallie.
Hallie, going, aren't we too good for the rest of this cast? By the way, Hallie, you're the heir apparent. Cyclops just isn't getting over it quick enough. <laughs> I, I marveled at that. That truly was a stunning moment. And it made me wonder, because Scott is not dead at that point. No. Does he anticipate where it's going? Is he so omniscient that he actually can foresee the future and rather than intervene, allow Scott to die so that Hallie can have his school? Does he know his own death is imminent? It really is a curious way of expressing that. And I don't know why they did it. I don't think he can see the future. I took it as Hallie put it in the contract, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid of you. (laughs) Honestly, though, if Storm wasn't here or recast, I don't know if it would have hurt the movie all that much. Maybe it would have. Maybe there are people that only turn up for X-Men because they want to see Hallie and the wig, which I got to say, best (laughs) wig of the trilogy. It's actually sexy. Yeah, the shag look is the right one. They should have had that all along. But I'm not sure that it would have been so detrimental if Phoenix had taken care of her first and we didn't have to deal with this ego massaging yeah no kidding and that's what i took that scene as although watching it from a story perspective it's like wow his fiance died and you're just not going to give him a little more time (laughs) no get over it move on or you're out it's pretty cold they're superheroes they're going to see tons of their comrades die throughout their history you got to get over the grieving process real quick if you're a comic book superhero every time those sales dip they're going to be killing off one of your friends to bring him back up yeah but was professor x knowing that his own death was imminent because like why did he need an heir apparent why would he not be running that school for years to come in his mind i think since the first one though he's been getting ready to pass on and and leave the school to someone else i mean i just thought he's old (laughs) he's got to die at some point the actor or the character the the character okay i mean in the first film when they find wolverine they say he might even be older than you professor x i mean (laughs) so the guy must be old or they're just insensitive douches (laughs) yes (laughs) but they needed a field leader i mean to take it back to star trek professor x is picard who sits on the bridge and cyclops was Riker, who leads the team in the field and since cyclops can't do it he's out uh you're fired he's like donald trump now and storm is the new team manager and yeah they did need to pare down the cast i'm not sure if massaging Hallie's ego was the way to go, though. Storm in this movie, she still doesn't do a whole lot. She just spins around and shoots more lightning, right? I mean, she had better scenes in the less of them in the past two movies. Yeah, dramatically, her debates that I pointed out and highlighted from the last two movies are non-existent here. That said, her spin move is kind of cool. I thought it was badass when she finally flew up in the air and did the whole little pirouette to attack those dudes, whatever they were. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it would be great in a video game. (laughs) Yeah. I felt that they gave her a lot more lines to speak in this film. There wasn't the substance behind it, but I felt she talked a lot more. (laughs) Yeah, true. She was on screen more, but did we want her there? It's still Wolverine's movie. It is more than ever because then they bring back Phoenix and Wolverine, of course, always had this lust for her, love for her, whichever it is. And he's the one tormented. And then, like Stuart hinted at, Phoenix kills Professor X. So now the leader, no matter what you put in somebody's mouth, the leader is Wolverine. How interesting that you saw it that way, because I had an entirely different reaction. The moment that X is taken out of the picture, my alliances have all gone to the Brotherhood. It is Magneto's movie at that movie. There is no other counterpoint. Wolverine was a character that was caught in the middle that eventually decided to say, hey, I'll hang out for the school for a while. But he is no leader, and neither is Storm, for that matter. The leader of the mutant resistance at this point is Magneto, and he is the character I care about most. This is his movie now. I totally give it to him. 
But he is completely back in a villain role. He is a Bin Laden here. He is out in hiding, getting his terrorist cells ready to strike against a government that he does not believe in. Well, let's talk about what that government is doing because it may or may not exonerate him. Let's talk about the quote-unquote cure because that's one of the big developments for this movie. And it's an interesting debate that they've opened up here. It's a new angle on the whole mutant-human relationships. The idea that they can be actually converted back into full-blooded humans without any mutant mutation in them anymore. How do you implement that? Do you implement that? You are the head of the pharmaceutical company. What do you think is going to happen to you when you put that out? When you tell a whole nation of people it's not going to work? Let me put it in a different context. What if somebody said, I can solve racism by making everyone white? (laughs) I mean, is that going to play? Would you really introduce that drug? And who do you get to sell it? (laughs) At the same time, Stuart, if I decide I want to be Janice instead of Jacob, I could go and do that. Now, it's not as easy as taking a pill, but I could go through medical science, change my sex, which that's just as much as my DNA as someone's skin color is. If I want to have my ears altered so they look elf-like or Spock-like, I could do that. There's already so many ways today where we could change our appearance, our sex. Are we changing our DNA like this does? No. But I I think like a lot of the questions in this film, you know, what do you do when you could read minds? When's the ethical time to do that? When's the ethical time to transfer your consciousness into someone that's comatose? (laughs) It doesn't provide the answers because I think it's an unanswerable question. And by the same token, nobody who's non-white is sitting around possibly in agony. I mean, you take Rogue. Rogue is our on-screen example of the mutant with the worst curse power because she can't touch her boyfriend. But you got to think there are probably mutants even more worse off. Toad? <laughs> yeah, Toad. Beast sheds on the furniture. You know, it's, it's not all optic blasts and telekinesis. No, of course not. But no one has been sitting through three X-Men movies wondering when they're going to develop the cure to make them all like average and like everybody else. We love them because they are fantastical. We celebrate them because they are unique. We do not want to see them turned uniform. That seems like the wrong direction to go. It's very understandable that Magneto and all of them would see this as a threat. But Magneto has a badass power. You brought up Rogue in the last podcast where her powers suck. What does she do? How does she go into battle? What if you are Toad? What if you're one of these weird-looking animal-like creatures? What's cool about that? I mean, Arnie said that. You don't have the optic blast. That's more of a curse, not being able to ever touch someone. And let's face it, Stuart, you said if somebody makes a pill, who's going to market it to make everybody white? Notice that the problem wasn't that there is a cure. And people may make that choice the same way Jacob may go ahead and become Janice for the rest of the Marvel podcast series. But where it became a problem is when it started being forced, when they weaponize it. That is a clear-cut ethical wrong. Although it does still raise the question, I mean, it, it then becomes a death penalty type question. The whole, will you kill Hitler as a child type question. If you have a mutant who can and has shown propensity to destroy the Earth, do you have the right to rob them of that ability? It's like chemical castration of a molester, I suppose. 
Well, that's an extrapolation of the metaphor, but yes, it is the human side of it, is when do they have the right to intervene with uniqueness? And I think that's what X-Men has been about. It's If there is something that is not like the other things, when is it your duty to make it fall into line? And Magneto has the best line in the movie. He's like, they put it in a gun. They call it voluntary, but they put it in a gun. Well, you know how he's going to respond to that. You know how you would perceive that, particularly coming out of the Holocaust. This is not uh, cosmetic surgery. This is not opening your options about what you can be and you're exploring your self-identity. That's what I'm saying about weaponizing it. This is a way of eradicating variants and making everything the same. But the intent was never to do it to all mutants. The intent was to use it as a weapon against dangerous ones, a way to level the playing field when you have a mutant going rogue. Is that really said that way? I got the sense that it was created in a lab basically because a father wanted to help his son, and the only way he knew how was to chemically alter him. Correct. That is why it was created. But I'm saying the reason it was put in the gun is simply to protect the guards in case the mutants escaped. It was not put in a gun to shoot every mutant they saw. So you guys are comfortable with the cure being developed and mass marketed to the populace. You wouldn't see that as the wrong impulse to follow. I'm just saying with today's technology, we're already kind of there. And maybe to your point, a lot of that is a positive spin. It's the people want to make change. They want to change their sex. They want to look like an elf. I would love to be able to take a pill so I never have to go to the gym again and I can eat whatever I want. Again, those are all positive things. And I'm seeing it from my point of view where I want to change. I think it gets to Arnie's point once they weaponize it. And if they're going to try to force it onto you, yes, that's crossing a line. But to make it an option, isn't that what democracy is? You give people choices and then they choose and they deal with those consequences. Yeah. And early on, I think it works really well as this morally uncertain force that we really don't know in the beginning how to feel about it. It really does totally change the way we perceive everything. And who are we to judge Rogue if she decides? She doesn't want to be the way that she was made. Why shouldn't she be able to change herself? If she was born physically deformed and got cosmetic surgery, we would applaud that. But I think, honestly, I think part of the problem is, and we've danced around this, but I don't think it's ever been said, one of the obvious metaphors for X-Men is that it's a metaphor for being gay. That, you know, it comes out latently in your uh, sexual development and that it's not accepted by mass society. And hell, the whole thing takes place in San Francisco. I mean, they know what they're doing. There's a lot of people involved in the cast and crew that are aligned with this politically. And yes, would you want to create a drug that would make everyone heterosexual? I guess I'm approaching it from a capitalist point of view. If people are willing to pay for it and you can make money off of it, then it's their choice. Yeah, you take that to the situation. I don't think that it should be forced on anyone, much like the father shouldn't have forced Angel to try to lose his wings. But if there was a homosexual who was, say, very religious and contemplating suicide because they couldn't reconcile the two, and there was the pill as an option that they chose they wanted, that is their right to choose it, right? Well, I would say yes, 
it is their right to choose it if that's what they want to do. People should have the right to choose what they want to do. But wouldn't it be better if they were in a world that was more tolerant of them and they wouldn't have to feel alienated by who they are? I mean, that's really the debate here. That's Magneto's argument is why should we have to change for you? And I understand what you're saying is that it's sort of put out there that the idea is that this is just an option for people that want it and need it and can't function otherwise. But truly, what's broken? Is it the people or is it the society? Because at no point before this have we really thought any of the characters, with the exception of Rogue, are people that need to be corrected. We love them because they are fantastical. Stuart, I'd be more likely to agree with you if we were talking about a pill to cure homosexuality. That doesn't set well with me. Again, if it's person choice, person choice, but it's a dangerous line. Here, I guess, yes, I get that being a superhero, especially X-Men, it could be a, a metaphor for homosexuality or race or all those different things. But for me, again, Rogue, it's a negative thing. So in the universe of this movie, I guess it's hard for me to be more sympathetic for pure mutantness or whatever you want to call it. Again, if it's not forced, I guess I'm all right with that. That is where this whole analogy breaks down is, Jacob, is it in the comic skin from Generation X is like in utter agony because of his distended skin and every time he stretches, it's like really painful? No, but he's in agony because his grandmother thinks he's the devil because he's a mutant. But Wolverine, he has the great line in the first one where he says it hurts every time he draws his claws. I mean, it comes at a cost, but I think what I would hope anybody would want is that you would be able to work with what you've got. And if it's not workable, then yes. If you are, in fact, deformed, if you can't function, if it is hurting you, then yeah, a cure might be the right thing. What about Rogue? If she's being hurt emotionally by it, she would have to live a chaste life. And that's exactly my point. Rogue is the exception here. Any other character, we would not want to see them take the cure. With Rogue, it offers a new dimension here. We aren't sure how to feel about it. And Wolverine has that dialogue with her. When she's getting on the bus, he's basically just telling her, just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and not to impress a boy. Which, honestly, I'm not sure that in the end of it, that isn't why she does it. But we'll get there. She wants to get laid. That's what it comes down to. I don't think it matters who the boy is. I don't think she did it for a boy. I think she did it for herself and not wanting to be alone the whole life. And there's a difference. Come on, guys. You are kidding yourself. This is not something that she's doing for herself. She is doing it because her boy is the wandering eye. And if she doesn't do something about it, he's going to wind up with Kitty at the ice skating rink. We know this. We've seen examples of this. This is her reacting to teenage crushes. And that is quite a thing. That would be like a 15-year-old getting a nose job because her boyfriend said she was ugly. Which happens today, so... (laughs) Exactly! I'm going to weigh in on that and say I don't think that's right. Am I the only one who kind of thought Ellen Page looked a little bit young or Anna Paquin a little bit old to be fighting over the same boy? Yeah, you are. But you know what? Ellen Page always looks young to me. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say she always looks like she's 11, doesn't she? Yeah, I said the same thing in Inception with her and Leo. I'm just like, it just feels (laughs) weird. But it's because she is so girlish. I mean, she just has young features. And for movies that only took place over a couple months, Anna Paquin really grew up. That's the other thing here is that Anna Paquin is obviously a very much more full-figured woman, and... I actually just meant in the face. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm oh. being honest, I wasn't referring to the movies. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> she's got she's got both. I think that's the thing, is that Anna Paquin looks developed, and Juno has a couple more years yet. She's still waiting for a growth spurt. 
<laughs> exactly. Late bloomer. But I, you know what? I like this dimension here. I like this wrinkle in this relationship. I like what Kitty brings to this and how it works in the debate. I think in so many of these situations, the setup here is great to really ask complicated moral questions. What I'm going to get to is when we get to the end is do they really resolve it the proper way? I think it's an unanswerable question. How do you resolve it? But that's good drama. That's how you make a good story, <laughs> is you take unanswerable questions and you put it into a context in which it makes sense. That is actually how stories are told. Now, maybe you don't find the answers, maybe you don't lecture people on what they need to do, but you do create a context in which there is a satisfying resolution. That is narrative storytelling. And this movie is not a great <laughs> example of that. It bites off way more than it can chew. And it has too many things going on, one of which I'm going to put to right now. The Cure is whole based on the fact that there is this leech character that supposedly drains the energy of anyone that's around it. Why do we need this character when it so obviously should be written for Rogue? This character should not be a new character. It should be Rogue at the lab with them developing her powers as the Cure. It solves the issue with her wanting to be normal. It doesn't create redundancy, which is what this movie does again and again and again with all of its multiple characters and storylines. First of all, I think the different storylines actually serve to reinforce a point, not necessarily be redundant about it because it tackles from different angles. But also, Leech's specific power is taking away other powers. Rogue doesn't take away their powers. She copies their powers and at the same time kills them in the process. She absorbs them. Yeah. They go from one character to her. You don't think they could have written this so that she would be that central character? And don't you think that would have given her a little bit more to do and let us her do everything, have all the complications she already does with a more interesting resolution? I definitely don't feel like you need this bald boy from THX 1138 who does nothing. <laughs> he just does nothing. And we never see him again. We don't even see his rescue. We just see him at the end of the school. It's a total functional tool. He is not a fully fledged character. And it should have been a character. That was the problem. Talking about redundancy, I mean, it wasn't that the first film that they had to save Rogue? Do I want to watch another film where she's the one that's captured and they got to go in and save her? Either way, you got redundancy going on. I feel with the way they set this up, you get experience the, the different sides of this debate through a mutant that doesn't like her powers. You want to talk redundancy? Isn't this yet another story about a father who's disappointed that his son is a mutant and thus develops a way to kill all mutants so that he can fix his son? Didn't we just see that? Yes. Some of these feel thematic, and then some of these do feel uncreative. And I guess we're each citing different things that we find unnecessary or, or redundant. But here, yes, I agree. That's why I would wanted it to be Rogue, because we already had this exact same storyline. And by making it Rogue, it allows that character to have a new dimension. She can have this whole I can be healed thing, and she serves a greater point to the plot, which she doesn't right now. Right now, she is commenting on a plot that has nothing to do with a character we've never met before and don't give a hoot about. And more to the point, we never really understand how the cure comes from him. We understand that if he is killed, there won't be any more cure. So is he like a drip? Do they like suck it out of him? I thought it was like Jason's brain juice. 
Yeah, didn't we see that in the last film? They didn't explain it. They just take some juice from his brain and do something with it. Right. It's not like they've modeled their cure based on how his body works. It would have to be something that comes out of his body, but he's never even hooked up to anything. You would think if he's providing cure juice for the entire world that he might be on a little drip there, but no. He plays in a room. That's it. (laughs) My biggest problem was, why do they have this kid locked up in Alcatraz? Like, did they get permission from his parents? Did they find him as an abandoned child? What's the legal stuff going on with them having custody of this kid and extracting whatever they're extracting from him? It's just like, yeah, we have this mutant locked up. Like, I don't mind the cure thing, but the fact that they're locking up a child for medical experiment, that's what bugs me. That's what's going to get me on Magneto's side. And the fact that we saw this last movie. (laughs) Again, I say, if it had been Rogue and she involuntarily agreed to do this, it would be a new thing. It would be a character we cared about with a history, and we would understand, as it is, this is a plot device that we don't care anything about other than it's a child in danger. So the cure is on Alcatraz? It makes it even worse that they're kind of keeping this kid there in Alcatraz. I feel like it's an idea that never got fully exploited. There should have been more to it. In the first one, Stuart, you pointed out, they're fighting for liberty on the Statue of Liberty. On Alcatraz, I don't quite get what they were fighting for. Well, it's San Francisco is, I think, the case in point, and Alcatraz makes it harder to get to. I think we could all agree that the symbolism in this film isn't quite up to par with one and two. Now, Alcatraz, it's a prison. It's cool. We get to lift the Golden Gate Bridge and fly it over there. It's a comic book. Now, the only question I really had was, does this cure hold? Is it going to be forever? Has there been enough trials for them to know that there's not going to be a reversal? Because the ex-gay movement, some of those people don't always stick. Who is Beast? Because he's this political ambassador guy that's kind of an X-Man, but not an X-Man. He comes in there and it sort of takes his power away when he gets near. And then when he walks away from the kid, he's back to normal. So why would we think that the cure would last forever? Because they stated it. Let's hope it does or Bobby's in for a bad night. <laughs> oh man that's the only evidence we have is that they said it doesn't wear off and of course there's that last scene where magneto's moving a chess piece and even though he had four cures <laughs> it appears that magneto shall return yes moving plastic pieces or stone or wood pieces they weren't metal i'm like what was that about but anyway i thought they were metal they were metal yeah they were metal why would you say that haven't you been to the homeless parks in san francisco where they have the really nice metal chess sets no i've (laughs) never played chess with metal pieces ever never well when you're magneto that's how you play chess powers or not i'd never played with glass pieces until x-men one but yes that's the secret at the end is that this entire movie is about creating these huge things we kill professor x but we have a back door to bring him back we cured rogue and we cured magneto but if we decide we want to pay him again we can bring him back too and mystique yeah and mystique yeah and they better fix that one because wow yes. wow there's only one harder hitting moment than the moment where she takes the bullet for him turns into normal and he leaves her naked on the floor saying you're not one of us anymore that is a stone cold move that was heavy that was actually a hard scene to watch and especially because they've actually developed her we talked about how much we liked her in the second film again I continue she's got spunk when they're trying to interrogate mm-hmm. her and she's just that's my slave name and like 
getting in their face uh, when she's in the cell and she's taunting the guard about how she's going to snap his neck. And I love that they brought in the Silence of the Lambs guy for that. Well, I don't know if I love it. It seems like an obvious choice, but we have no problem with that guy getting killed. That's for sure. Getting his neck cracked. Yeah, so out of all the deaths or transformations here, I think hers affecting me the most. You know, Cyclops, who cares? He hasn't done anything in any of the movies. Xavier, I don't know, whatever. He's kind of been a jerk in that film. It was his time. Yes, he, he was old and in a wheelchair. Jacob's <laughs> all about Soylent Greening Professor X. <laughs> yes. It's like, it's time for him to go. Yes, recycling. But Mystique's like one of those characters, you know, you don't expect to really, lie. well, I guess you might because she's blue and naked. I gotta say, John Stamos, or I guess now Jerry O'Connell, is a very lucky man because, come on, Rebecca Romaine picking the keys off the guards and then lifting her ankle up to her face. Yes. <laughs> I ended up really liking her character by this third film. I was sad to see her go. It is such a tragic way. Magneto is stone cold. That's when you get how militant he is. He's like, well, you're normal now. Bye. Thanks mm-hmm. for saving me in the last couple of films. And I love the fact that every fanboy in the entire audience is drooling over naked Rebecca Romaine and Magneto goes, she used to be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an awesome scene. It's actually played very, very well, but it's hard because it's just something we don't want. And I agree with you. It's more painful than losing Scott or Professor X. It's like, wow, it's hard for me to see her lose her power and it's hard for me to see that betrayal. You get why she rats him out later in the movie because, yeah, it's got to sting real deep for everything that she went through to be tossed away like a chess piece. But that said, I don't think I took it as hard as you guys did. I was shocked because when I was watching it for this podcast, I did not remember this happened. I did not remember that she got cured. It was all very shocking to me. But by the same token, I was like, yes, this is what Magneto would do. I felt bad at the loss of a really cool character. And I felt that for a supermodel, Rebecca Romaine was really pulling off the role. You know, in the first movie, she didn't do much. She was hired because she was hot. But in the second movie and the parts we saw of this movie, she really was doing a great job. I was sad to see the character lost, but the rest of it was just kind of meeting expectations. Well, I guess with Magneto, yes, theoretically, I would understand that being his response, but to actually see it on the screen, actually see it unfolding, I mean, that's a different thing. I guess by this time, I understand cold, hard logic. Yes, that's what Magneto's going to do, but I've become so wrapped up in Mystique as a character to actually see it happen, it still hit me. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of blue characters, every movie we get a new blue. Mystique, then it was Nightcrawler in the last one. Now we have Beast. I gotta know what this is, because I've never heard of Beast before. I would have named him as one of the characters. He kind of looks like Grimace to me. Wait, Grimace? The McDonald's purple lumpy? No, (laughs) what? Yeah, it's like this big lumpy thing. Am I supposed to like this guy? Because he's not really an X-Men. He's working for the government. He's sort of a placator between the X-Men and Professor X and the president. Uncle Beast. Well, it's funny because he actually does make an appearance in X2, but he's human. But there's a little news blurb about how he's fighting for mutant rights, and it says Dr. Hank McCoy up on the screen. I know you're not really into superhero comics, but he is one of the original X-Men. Now, the reason you might not recognize him is because originally he was more of a 
hairless gorilla. He was human, but he had large legs and large fists and arms, and he was still acrobatic like this beast is. That mutation takes place later on in his fictional history. Basically, he's the thing without rocks. He's hairy instead. Yes. I often felt like the original X-Men, the 60s Stan Lee X-Men, were just a cheap carbon copy of the Fantastic Four, and he was the thing. Okay, well, I guess that'll be helpful when we get to those movies. I don't understand why we had to get rid of one blue character. Can you not have three blue characters in the film <laughs> with Nightcrawler? I mean, they were running out of blue makeup. I'm quite convinced they weren't quite up to Avatar standards where they could have a whole <laughs> cast of blue characters. They could only have two max. We already say there's not enough for the characters there to do. I wish there had been a dropped line for Nightcrawler's absence to be explained, since very little time appears to have passed. But I don't miss him. I just thought. They introduced him in the last film. He was the beginning of the last film, and he ends up being one of the characters that helps saves the day. And I thought, why wouldn't they just keep him? They're getting rid of so many characters in this film. They couldn't have given Nightcrawler an off-screen death, too? <laughs> what they said in the commentary is there was nothing for him to do to justify putting Alan Cumming in the makeup. This is the most expensive movie. They couldn't afford the... <laughs> A couple more bucks to put him in the makeup. It was already the most expensive movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a question of affording. It's just what do you gain from it? Yeah. Who would have wanted to see two minutes of him teleport through a wall and then get shot? This movie becomes nihilistic in its second half, and it really becomes about, okay, who are we going to get rid of? And I don't like it when characters just are put out to pasture for non-humanitarian reasons. It's like, ah, we just got to kill a bunch of people. It is a shame. In a certain way, though, here we get Colossus coming into his own. We get Colossus, who was in the last movie very briefly. They brought the same actor back, and he's got a bigger role here. And I always think of kind of Colossus, Kitty Pride, and Nightcrawler, and Wolverine, and Storm all in the same package. So... I kind of would have liked that. And, you know, you could have had him be the one contemplating the cure. But yeah, I don't think you need Nightcrawler and Beast and Rogue. They would start to really serve the same purpose too much. But Beast, yeah, I know him because I watched the X-Men cartoon in the 90s. So immediately I have an affection for this character. I think knowing that Beast is ironically named and that they mutated him in additional looks when they started with that character, he was really stupid. But then he became hyper intelligent. Oh, yeah, he's a biochemist. None of this character made any sense to me. We're introduced, he's hanging upside down. I'm like, is he a bat? It's Kelsey Grammer, for Christ's sake. In an action movie, I'm like, I just didn't get this character, why it needed to be here, what it served. It just felt like I didn't want Beast yet. If he's a cool character, save him for a movie that can feature Beast, because I didn't like him. All the other films, whenever you had these animal-like mutants, they were stupid, they were the villains. So now we got an animal-like mutant that's really, really smart. He's looking, I thought it was a nice switch of what they had done with the previous film how they had characterized, you know, you brought up the point, Stuart. If you look like an animal, you're going to be a bad guy. Here, they switched it up. He's really smart, so I like that. You know what it is? The new characters aren't doing anything for me. It's like we're losing ones that I have some affinity for, and they're replacing them with Beast and Angel. And I'm like, does anyone care about Angel? I'm really shocked that, though you'd think Beast doesn't do anything, he has more screen time than a lot of the returning X-Men because he's got all those scenes where he's talking to the president and everything. He doesn't get a lot of action, but he's in a lot of this movie. Yes, in a role-asking question. It's not a very pivotal role. I feel like they could have done that in a different way. It does not feature his uniqueness in a way that makes me want to like this character. You guys know him, and so you were happy to see him. I don't know who he is, and he does not replace Professor X, Gene, or even Cyclops. He does not step up when the other people are falling away. 
I just like that. Here's the person that is the diplomat for mutants. And instead of going with the obvious person that looks pretty normal, like Professor X, Jean Grey, even Cyclops. I mean, he's just got a funky pair of sunglasses. They go for one of the most mutanty, mute looking mutants there is. I just like that how much he sticks out. And here's your diplomat of mutants. He's a real mutant mutant. He's not someone that just looks humanoid. I wish he had more to do in this, but I do like him. I like Kelsey Grammer's delivery. I'm surprised that Kelsey Grammer pulls it off as well as he does. And I I think a lot of maybe both of our affection for the character is because of Kelsey Grammer. We talked about with Xavier, he comes off a certain way because it's played by Patrick Stewart. I think it's the same way with Beast because it is Kelsey Grammer. He has a certain gravitas. And with all the scenes with Beast, our friend from Predator, Bill Duke as Trask. Yeah, we've been told that that's who Mystique is impersonating when she got busted. And and I kept waiting for Bill Duke to do something cool, but he's just sort of like a henchman that's pressing the president to go to war. He's sort of the devil on his shoulder and Beast is the angel. Well, in the comics, Trask is a major villain who, like, creates the giant robots that I can't imagine them ever putting in a movie, except in the early scene in the Danger Room where we get to see the giant robot head in Terminator Future. Oh, you mean the holodeck? <laughs> what was that? If this wasn't Star Trek enough, how do we just totally take this? Did Patrick Stewart just like have a key to Paramount? Was like, hey, we'll go borrow, we'll go borrow the holodeck for this shot. Like, really? You're gonna take that? Tell me they don't have this in the comic. Yes, they do. It's the danger room. I mean, they've had it since the early days. It's where they practice. And originally, it wasn't a hollow deck. It was just a room full of like missiles and cages. And eventually, they got some alien technology so they could create the hollow deck. And if you like that, Stuart, at one point, the danger room became sentient and became its own being. So they ripped off Star Trek and then Terminator. Now, did you guess that was a fake scene when they cut to that, where it says, you know, they use the same subtitle from the first film, the near future, and they, they're in this all-out war? I mean, how did that hit you? you not knowing what was going on because i knew that had to be the danger room i didn't know what it was but i knew it was a test i knew that because storm was sort of leading everything and sort of acting as an instructor that this must be a test for these kids so i was just waiting for the ruse to come up i did not think it would be a holographic room no i did not i just like that they get a sentinel head in there you know because they could never make giant walking robots work in this film i can't imagine them going there Purple robots, Arnie. Purple robots. Yeah. Are you talking about the Iron Giant? <laughs> yes, but purple. Okay, all right. The Iron Giant with Prince's fashion. I didn't know what that was. It seemed like a Terminator thing. In general, I didn't know why they would want to remind us of Terminator. Well, it's from the comic, though. I mean, before Terminator, well, it's from the 80s, so maybe around the same time. But, I mean, it is from the comic. Yeah, it's something tossed out to fans. It's totally there for fans. I mean, I, yes, I geeked out when I saw Sentinel Head land. And that's cool. I definitely recognize these movies all have little moments that must be exciting for people that get the end joke and I'm not in on the end joke this time. That's fine, but the scene didn't do anything for me. I was waiting for it, the curtain to rise so that we could go on with the movie. I knew this wasn't the plot. Angel, anyone? Anybody want this no, one? No, I, 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 I'm not <laughs> standing up for Angel. I'm right behind you there, Stuart. I mean, he shows up for, what, two or three scenes? And it's a good introduction. You feel for him when he's self-mutilating himself in the bathroom and he's trying to cut off his wings to be normal. We understand that he wants to stand up to his father, but he literally drops out of the rest of the movie and only comes back at the end. If he's an X-Man, I didn't see him join the school, really. He just flies in and out. 
Yeah, he literally just flies right through the movie. He's more a symbol than a character, isn't he? Yeah. Because he's supposed to be so angelic yes. and representing all the good things mutants can be. Oh, absolutely. Yes, that's what he represents. But it's a wash. It's like Beast, Angel. The same way with the bad guys. We lose Mystique and we replace him with Juggernaut. I don't get Juggernaut and I don't get his weird goth friends either. All right, well, let's talk about Juggernaut and the Goth Friends. I was so happy when I heard Juggernaut was finally coming in, one of the few villains I knew. I didn't think Vinnie Jones was a big enough guy to play him. I mean, Juggernaut's supposed to be huge. Not big enough. I mean, wasn't the whole discussion in Midnight Meat Train was how imposing Vinnie Jones is? He's got some gravitas. I wouldn't mess with him. Listen, I don't have any doubt that Vinnie Jones could kick my ass. I really don't. But the problem is he's a footballer. With Juggernaut, I kind of want the Tyler main. I want the rock. I want a guy with 24 to 36 inch muscles on his arms. I want somebody huge. I want a wrestler for the Juggernaut. I like Vinnie Jones. Yeah, he looked really menacing and imposing in Midnight Meat Train. Maybe it was how he was photographed here. He just never seemed larger than life on the screen. Maybe it was the hat. He's like huge in the comic. I mean, he, he's like giants. I don't know if I wanted to see that. Yeah, maybe throw in. I don't know who's wrestling these days. I think Andre the Giant's dead. But yeah, <laughs> throw in some big wrestler. I mean, I don't know. I'm the juggernaut, bitch. Wouldn't work. Yeah, they'd have to dub his lines in there. <laughs> he looks like he's rammed his face into a few walls. So I didn't mind Vinnie Jones as juggernaut. Why not CGI him? In the Hobbit films, they took John Rhys Davies and made him a little person. <laughs> Why not take Vinnie Jones and make him even bigger? Obviously, it can be done. I mean, you know they did that to him, right? I mean, he's obviously wearing prosthetics. Right, but he needed to be even bigger. And again, it could be how it was photographed. But to me, it looked like Magneto was towering over him the whole time. So I didn't feel he was imposing physically. I have no association with who Juggernaut is outside of this movie. He looked plenty big to me. He certainly was an admirable foil and bigger than Wolverine. And that's all they really needed to demonstrate. Uh, Let me just say, though, that the reason we have Vinnie Jones, that is a holdover from Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn, of course, did all those Brit crime comedies with Vinnie Jones. That's why Vinnie Jones is here. Okay. Makes sense. Give his friend a role, and God knows Magneto needs new villains. They've been pairing off. They need something. If they're going to get rid of Mystique and Sabretooth and Toad are gone, we need some badasses. But I've got to say, Multiple Man? I'm just so glad he split up, because I thought he was all about nightly pleasure or something. I'm like, what the hell is he going to do? That's not very impressive. Now I wish I'd used a different opening line to the podcast. Multiple man. That's dumb. And you know, Stuart, you mentioned last podcast how fun Mystique would be for any bisexual or guy. Imagine multiple man for the ladies. It's not cheating if there's ten of you. (laughs) Pleasure the whole world. They might change the woman vote on the mutant debate. But the juggernaut, Jacob, real brief, you want to fill Stuart in on why people would be excited about the juggernaut? Sell me on this guy because I'm really on the fence. I get that he's big and I get that he can run through walls. He kind of reminded me of Rhino from Spider-Man, the cartoon. It's the only Spider-Man I really ever watched. But that's it. What's he do? He's an elephant, right? Again, he has a much fuller history in the comics. He's actually the stepbrother of Charles Xavier. And he's not even a mutant. He got his powers from a magic crystal that he found 
during the Korean War when they were fighting together. Can we all agree that we're glad that they didn't put that in the movie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, you think it's bad now, Stuart. It could have been a lot worse. None of that needs to be in this movie. Yes. <laughs> He's a seminal X-Men villain. It's what the fanboys want to see. We don't care about Toad, but we want to see Mystique. We want to see Sabretooth. We want to see Juggernaut because that's one of the big baddies in the comic books. What does he do? Literally, is he just a big thug? That's the point. Yeah, he's super strong and... Once he starts moving, you can't stop him. He is okay. the unstoppable force. All right. That comes across pretty well. It's just, I don't know that he was entirely well utilized. He has one fight scene here with Wolverine that's pretty good. And then he chases, to poor effect, Kitty Pride at the climax. If I can utilize Jacob's newly minted verb from the last podcast, he almost gets baned, in my opinion, because the Juggernaut is supposed to be as big a baddie as Magneto, and here, he just becomes the Sabretooth replacement. Yeah, that's about how I feel about him. And Sabretooth got baned, so it's like double baned here. (laughs) Bane squared. But he's not the Juggernaut, bitch. I don't know what the Juggernaut is, and I don't understand why that line made the entire theater jump up and scream. I remember this hitting the internet before the film came out, and so I knew that line. You know, I'm not surprised, Stuart, when you said people went crazy for that line, because it had leaked out. I don't know what the origin of why they would use that line, though. And I wanted to say, it's a bad line. They shouldn't have used it. All right, I got a story for this. I watched this movie, and he goes, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch. And I'm laughing with the rest of the audience because I'm like, well, that's an odd thing to say. (laughs) I don't get it. But it's so out of nowhere. Let's go with it. And thank God they cut the next line. I watched the deleted scenes on the disc. He runs through the next wall and then tries to Jack Nicholson. Here's Juggy. Oh, jeez. Yeah. (laughs) So these are just Vinnie Jones improvs. That's him being funny. No, no, these were director mandated because I was listening to another podcast called Geeks On that I like after this movie came out and they were talking about it and they started saying this came from a YouTube video. And I'm like, a YouTube video? What in the hell? I thought it was just a line in the movie. Turns out, thanks to Geeks On, I went to YouTube and found out somebody took the old 90s X-Men cartoon and dubbed really stupid pimp dialogue on it. And so you get the juggernaut and I guess there's Black Tom Cassidy with him or somebody who's his partner and like the partner is the supposed to be like this pimp talking guy and the juggernaut just keeps going i'm the juggernaut bitch and that's throughout the whole youtube video it's like his dino mind (laughs) i'm the juggernaut bitch and it goes on way too long and it's not funny it's like a 10 minute video that was made by a couple of eight-year-olds it's terrible the line in the movie is so much better i like the line i'm the juggernaut bitch from the movie, but the source material that Brett Ratner felt was so good that it needed an homage in his X-Film, whew, bad. I guess I'm just glad they didn't put a cat playing the piano in here, then, if they're going to YouTube for their ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe that could be a cool mutant. Maybe X-Men First Class will have Spaghetti Cat. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it'll be Beast eating spaghetti. He kind of looks like a cat. You're more correct than you probably know. He had a second mutation where he has a cat-like appearance now, so quite possibly. (laughs) And Beast is in first class. The movie, not the flying section, although as Secretary of Cabinet, he's probably there too. But then there's all the henchmen, the Omegas. Jacob, I know none of these characters. Were these just made up for the movie? 
there's various groups in the X-Men universe. They're not all either X-Men or Brotherhood of Mutants. There's, believe it or not, a group called the Morlocks, who, yes, live underground under New York. And there was a group called the Omegas, though it's very different than this group. Great run. I talked about it during the first X-Men film. What the comics did after that film came out, how they were inspired. You had this group called the Omegas, which were all these teenage students at Xavier School, and they all decided to rebel. They actually do get tattoos on them. It's just a very cool way to explore, probably better than Generation X did, or definitely better than Generation X did, what happens with Teenage Rebellion when the teenagers can rebel with superpowers. So that's the origins of the Omega group. They're actually a group of rebellious teenage students as Xavier's school, not a group of homeless goths like they are here. But the tattoos, they did have the tattoos. That makes a little more sense, because, yeah, they all seemed a little young, and they all needed to seem like they needed a good spanking. <laughs> I mean, really, just obnoxious kids. And they're the ones that started highlighting a subtle problem I've always had with this series, but is now becoming in full bloom. And that is, why is everyone mutating with these micro-specific powers? Why is it that a guy named Spike suddenly just grows spikes out of his wrist? I mean, isn't this just a little too micro-specific, really, to make any damn sense? Well, what do these characters do? One's a porcupine? I mean, just... Come on, really? Stuart, you're bringing this up now? That's how the X-Men are. I said they're one-trick ponies. Everyone has their different skill, and that's it. You get one mutation. It was not a problem for me until these guys came on the scene. That is honestly the truth. When I started seeing these guys, I'm like, oh, come on. That's just a little too, I don't know. It seems like they all bought jean jackets and called themselves a gang. It's like, come on. Like, really? You're all going to have these silly low powers? I guess it's because none of them have cool powers. They all look foolish. Come on. What about fat? P-H-A-T, where he could go from a fat guy to a skinny guy. And that's actually his name on the credits, at least, is Fat Little Fat. He's actually from the comics. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm just saying what's even weirder, and this isn't going to mean anything to you, Stuart, but they have no. Cyclock as one of the evil ex-mutants where she's a huge character. She's not even Bane in this film. I don't know what she is. I mean, Cyclops, huge psychic ninja Asian that wears a G-string and fights evil. Here, she's this background character, some purple highlights, and she has a couple of scenes. Like, it was really weird. They just started throwing names out there and powers out to whoever. You talked about how this was rushed. I think they just started open a comic book, and the first name and power they see, they just give it to a character. Yeah, my comparison in the Star Wars world is by the time Return of the Jedi came on, there were just too many Muppets. There were just too many creatures, and I'm having a similar problem here. The Omegas are the Ewoks? Is that what you're saying? I think I might be saying that, yes. Yeah, like, I have reached the maximum Muppet capacity here, and I need it to stop. And these are where I draw the line. I don't like these guys. I don't think they're very useful. You know, Magneto still has Pyro. That's good enough for me. He does not need the goth gang. And they're just too stupid to be much of a threat. And I don't know why he needs so many if he has multiple man. <laughs> I guess multiple man can't do it for him. And, and let's not forget that he also has Jean Grey on his side, the Dark Phoenix, who is the most powerful mutant in the universe. Why does he need an army too? Hey, yeah, why don't why didn't he use her? I mean, the only one of these omegas that you call on him that seems to have any function is the chick. That kind of senses mutant's power and can run really fast or whatever. Because she's sort of like the foil for Storm. Like, she's the one that when the battle finally goes down, she and Storm go at it. It's chick on chick fight. You got to have one of those. So you, you got to have one for Storm to fight. And that's it. But the rest of them, no. You know what happens to a chin stud when it gets struck by lightning? Thank goodness that 
she was able to find mutants in her mind because I don't know if I needed to see Cerebro ever again. I mean, we had it in Generation X and two X-Men. I'm done with Cerebro. (laughs) Thank goodness they found a way to get rid of that whole mechanism. Yeah, I was shocked that it was the plot of two films. Jean Grey is a strange thing. You'd think that she would be all he needs, but... The way the movie was released, it really leaves some big question marks. Like I said in the plot summary, she starts atomizing everyone at the end. All the Omegas, everyone around gets atomized except for the X-Men. They're fine. She is still fighting the Phoenix. I mean, once Wolverine approaches her, she's able to come through. So maybe now, yes, I'm stretching here. I'm making excuses for the movie. Maybe that's what was going on. She recognized them as friends and that Jean Grey that was still buried in the Phoenix was keeping them alive. One thing I really love when we finally see Phoenix go into her rage and she's tearing through stuff and all is it's an excellent callback to one of my favorite animes. You guys ever seen Akira? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I love Akira. That was my comic book. That was the comic book I collected. And seeing her go through her psychic rage and all that, it's just like that end battle with Tetsuo and Kaneda. Loved it. Loved that element of it. If you're going to reference something, a live-action Akira is the way to go. And of course, Magneto's attacking. The army is there. Trask had ordered all of the soldiers to go in a wonderful scene with a voice that could only be, and I looked it up and I was right, Arlie Ermey. Uh-huh. I heard him too, but I didn't see him. No, he's not there. He just did a VO. <laughs> Actually, I looked it up because I thought it might be a voice sound-alike artist. Yeah, no, they actually got him. Not that he was that hard to get. He was where Texas Chainsaw the beginning around this time. Well, they were throwing money right and left. It <laughs> sounds like they there was lots of ideas coming in and out of the picture at this point. Maybe at one point he was going to be in it. Who knows? Leading up to this scene, I just had one question for you guys. Because I've seen this movie a number of times, and this edit always confuses me. You know, we get this great scene where Magneto lifts up the Golden Gate Bridge to transport all the mutants to this island. And that's during the day... And then it lands and it cuts to nighttime where they're still waiting to attack. Did I miss something? I thought maybe the sun was going down, but I didn't actually see the sun going down. But I presume they were attacking at sunset. It's just a bad edit for me. It always takes me out at that moment because it's just all of a sudden it's midnight or whatever. I've watched this movie a number of times and never noticed. But thank you because now that'll be the only (laughs) thing I notice from here on out. You're welcome. Oh, no, it's glaringly apparent. Yeah, I'm surprised you never noticed that. You should have caught it. They go from bright light to walking across the bridge and complete darkness. I just hated the line, Charles always wanted to build bridges. That felt Batman and Robin to me. Really? Because the rest of the dialogue and the rest of the movie kind of heads towards Batman and Robin land from this point. This is the point of the movie where I went from being engaged and feeling like, okay, they've taken what Singer's doing and they've ratcheted up a notch and I will totally allow Brett Ratner to put his own stamp on this to feeling like, no, now he's just dumbing this down into a very stupid action movie. This ending blows. I disagree. So do I. I liked this ending. I thought it was full of action. I thought it was inventive. I thought it was grand. And this is probably where the money went was to this. I love all the different facets of it. I love that it's six X-Men against 6,000 other mutants. I really like this. Thank you, Arnie. Thank you. Finally, we get to see the X-Men fighting something. I said this at the beginning. They fought a magnet and a handicapped guy in the first two films. Thank goodness those had character (laughs) development moments to hold me over because those are boring fights. These are powerful people. I want to see the six on 6,000. I want to finally get my big battle. 
I need that. I like action movies. I talked about this during Magneto's Escape in the last podcast. I like those big, dumb, absurd, but awesome comic book moments. And finally, finally, I'm getting a climax that matches that. I never want to see Wolverine castrate something and say, grow another one a pair of those. Oh, come on. After he's cutting off the guy's arms. Yes, it's stupid, but I chuckle every time. It's a funny moment. It is. No, it's not funny, actually. (laughs) And most of what I watch in the rest of the movie is not funny at all, and sometimes it's downright infuriating. We are at polar opposites at this point. I hate The Last Stand. I hate everything that it does. You hate the score? Because out of the all the X-Men movies we watch, this is the one whose score I really like. I'm not talking about technical okay. things. It may even be satisfying as a karate <laughs> film. But I'm telling you, right now, scene after scene, it is totally pissing me off. I'm with Jacob. I think this is so much better than the last one. The last one, we got the obligatory Wolverine Lady Death Strike fight. Here, the fight feels justified. And like it's not like they tried to build something up the whole time. Justified? If he's got the Phoenix, why does anyone else need to be on the battlefield at all? Because the Phoenix has to choose. That's the big switch is that Xavier didn't let Jean Grey choose what to do with her powers. And Magneto's actually letting her choose. So she's standing back. She has to make her choice. They cut some scenes that I really think they should have let in. I mean, there were 40 seconds tops combined during this fight where Magneto tries to give Phoenix an order. And Phoenix turns and looks like she's about to kill Magneto and goes, you're starting to sound like him. And so that would have explained it. By cutting that 40 seconds out, it makes it a head scratcher. Why doesn't Phoenix just kill them all? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking here, was that this seems useless. And then, of course, we have the juggernaut scene that everyone else in the audience liked but me. I kind of liked the pairing. You know, fire and ice as the climax between Iceman and Pyro. We haven't even talked about it because it's so obvious, right? But juggernaut and Kitty Pride, that makes great sense once I thought about it that they can both go through walls just in different ways. The pairing is fine. Her saying dickhead and him running into the wall and falling over unconscious, not fine. Not fine at all. Not a good way to write out of that conflict. Honestly, I thought it was great, and I thought it was setting up the ultimate end, because nobody, including the writers of this movie, realize is Jean Grey is not the most powerful mutant. Leech is. Hello! If we're going to jump to that, then that is the biggest flaw of this whole story at all, is that you have set up the obvious battle here. A mutant that can't do anything but be filled with power and is amassing more and more power with a mutant that does nothing but suck the power out of things. How can they not face off to one another? And they never even meet! I thought it was so obvious. I thought that had to be where it goes, right? It was painfully obvious, and instead she gets stuck with the claws. Storm talks to Wolverine like, it's his destiny. You'll be able to do it in the right moment. Like, this is what she wants, too. Stick her with the claws, and I get the school. She gets the school, yes. And she gets the Wolverine. I think she has designs (laughs) on Wolverine. Perhaps, but this is a horrible write-out. To make another major character die, to make Wolverine grieve about it, and to not have the polar opposite of the Dark Phoenix meet the Dark Phoenix. That is beyond stupid. It's a failure. It is the obvious ending, but it's what they wrote up, is by creating that, you put fire and ice together, you got your positive and negative, you gotta bring them together. He should have been the one to depower Phoenix, and then 
make Jean live with what she'd done or something. No, Rogue should have been done that, but Rogue should have been Leech. But anyway, that's me <laughs> rewriting all of that. But yeah, it is a total mistake that after the Juggernaut runs into a wall, we never see Leech again, except he's at the school. No, he's invited to the school. Like, how is Hallie going to train him on their powers if they all have the powers sucked out of him? Terrible choice. Send him to Europe. <laughs> no, you're studying abroad. You're studying at Emma Frost School with Banshee. Maybe it will shut up, Banshee. Stuart, I agree. Leech just disappears. You get the moment where Angel's dad's about to be thrown off the building. He swoops down, catches him, and just flies away. Do we see, does Warren Worthington II have any regret for creating this cure and causing... It's totally stupid, but I'm finally getting my action. Like, let's talk about Magneto getting depowered. The obvious thing when everyone has their one single power is, like, they have to combine them all to make it work, to carry out a plan. We haven't really seen that. So finally we get Iceman. He takes out Pyro because fire and ice. Storm creates a cover. She brings in the clouds. Colossus, the super strong guy, throws Wolverine who acts as the decoy. Hank, with the beast, with his acrobatics, flies in, stabs Magneto. Like, we didn't do the obvious thing with Leech taking out Phoenix, but at least we get that moment that you wait for in X-Men where everyone combines their one single power to do something great. But they did that in the first one. It took them all to stop Magneto the first one because Storm and Jean both had to work together to lift Wolverine up, and then Cyclops had to shoot Magneto, and Wolverine stopped the spinning. It was the same kind of thing. We did see it in one. Yeah, I felt it came together here more though I, I didn't get that feeling in the first one here i'm like you get that moment where they call it out and it's obvious it always feels like a cheerleader pyramid to me everyone's there <laughs> to prop up wolverine it's like wolverine will be the one to fix all of this so it was a surprise in that sense and that i thought for sure that somehow they would make wolverine's metal skeleton and magneto's power to manipulate metal into some kind of battle here but no beast matters why because he can what what's his power he jumps he's, he's agile. agile he's acrobatic He's agile. Oh, okay. That's a great power. <laughs> he comes in and sticks them with the thing that they are all united against. Wow. I have two questions wow. about this. First of all, Stuart, you said that good drama asks the questions and then provides the answer. I think this provided Ratner's answer is in the face of dire consequences, it is okay to weaponize the cure. Wolverine could not accept Xavier making the hard choice to partition off Jean's brain. But by the end of the movie, when Wolverine has to make the decision along with Beast, they realize, yes, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That is the argument that has been trumped up by Ratner and his many screenwriters. That is correct. That is the only option they had out of the situation that they created. However, dramatically speaking, how much more satisfying would it be for a mortal to save Magneto or for Magneto to come to the realization that his philosophy was in fact all wrong? I cannot accept that it is okay for the X-Men to say, we are against this cure, it is a terrible idea, we have to stop it, but... But we can use it if we get into a pinch and can't battle our way out. I don't think they were ever against it. They only showed up to save Leech. They weren't trying to stop the cure. They're trying to save another mutant when they showed up. They were allowing their own students to go get the cure if they wanted. They were pro-choice cure. I don't know that they were pro-choice cure. <laughs> Professor X wasn't. He was alarmed by it. Beast comes to him and they're not happy that this is on the marketplace. 
but they don't try to stop it. They don't try to take it off the marketplace. No, the flimsy plot is constructed around the idea that they're trying to protect the child from all the mutants that want to stop it. Even though they more or less agree with the mutants, they're going to kill their own kind. Why would they protect Leech? In Magneto's big rallying speech before the end attack, he says, We will take this cure. If any mutant stands in our way, we will use this poison against them. We will take control of the cure and destroy its source. To me, that's Magneto saying, we're going to take the cure, and if any mutants try to stop us, we'll cure them. I didn't catch it, and I didn't see them doing that. They never got the cure. They never succeeded in taking control of the cure. I wonder if they stuck that in there to exonerate the X-Men and get them off the hook for what they did. You guys, seriously, you have no problem with the fact that they took out Magneto in this way. What else were they going to do? Were they going to kill him? Are you asking me to rewrite this? There are a million other things they could have done. I like that this was what they did because it was a hard choice. It is a morally ambiguous choice. This whole movie's theme has been moral ambiguity and trying to make the best choice in hard times and trying to choose the lesser of two evils. And they chose an evil. And I like that. I like that we can have this debate and somebody say that's a terrible thing to do and others to say it was the right thing to do. That is why I like it. Do I side with the choice made? I don't know. I like it better than your idea of Magneto going, Oh, shucks, I was wrong. I'm going to stop being evil now. I don't think he ever would have laid down his arms against man. So I think it was necessary. And yeah, I like it because... It completes the theme of moral ambiguity that is coursed throughout this movie. I think it is a slap in the face to anything Professor X would have ever taught these X-Men. His school has failed because his educational is about coexistence. It would not be about taking away someone's choice. They're going to coexist with Magneto with him being a human and then be mutants. It's the same choice that Xavier made with Gene. So Xavier was faced with a similar choice. No, Jean was the mutant. She was not normal. Her mutant powers weren't locked away from her. They were contained. They were extraordinarily diminished. The same thing, Arnie. Your argument's false. Oh, it is the same thing. Arnie, your argument is false. Gene was a mutant whose power he was developing. Magneto is an old, feeble man now. But he also locked it up. He locked up most of her power. He didn't think she was able to contain it. And it wasn't in a trust fund to give back. He took it away. But it was in a trust fund to get away because if you call something the Phoenix, you know it's going to rise again. Yeah, that's the problem with that name, huh? <laughs> It's not too uh, obvious there. <laughs> it's coming back. You don't have any idea that it's gone for good. I found the ending to be emotionally satisfying. I thought it was really upsetting to watch Magneto transform, but I accepted it because I thought that's dark. But what I didn't like is the way those guys grinned at each other like they had done something good. They have betrayed their teachings. This is a very ugly moment, and it was played as a rah-rah good time. And that's Ratner not understanding what he had done. He's not understanding his material. He came in, and he did not understand what he did. If Singer had done this, if he had made this choice, we would have cared in this moment. It would have been an emotional moment. And here, it is a bunch of guys slapping each other in the back going, ha-ha-ha, we got him. It's a terrible choice. Perhaps I can agree with you on the laughter at the end. It should have been a harder choice. It should have been a sad moment for them that they had to do it. But I think they had to do it. It should have had the emotional weight of when Magneto turns his back on Mystique. It should have been played as a moment like that where they do feel sad for him. 
Yeah, and I just don't think that it should have been this stupid Beast character flying in and sticking him with a grin. If that was the way it was going to go down, if it had to be that in order for him to understand mankind, he had to become one of them, fine. I'll go with that. But don't tell me that that's our rah-rah happy ending and that Beast is a good guy for doing it. It's just, I can't accept that. And that's not the only choice in this ending that I felt the same way. Maybe it is Rogue's right to go and change who she is and become normal again. But all that I get out of her doing it this way is the fact that Brett Ratner is the least romantic man that ever <laughs> make a movie because he would think that the happy ending is that she gets to have sex and not that she gets to be herself and have her boyfriend. It's taken away the fact that what they had was like a classic romance in the Victorian sense of the word. That they can never be together, but they will always be together. And Brett Ratner just thinks, nah, they need to screw. <laughs> As if, if, if he had been able to screw her three years ago, they would have already broken up and been with other people. I mean, like, this guy just doesn't get it. He doesn't get romance. This did, I know, anger a lot of Rogue fans because they found a betrayal of the character because, you know, in the comic, she's had the same powers forever. How can you depower her like this? And, again, Leech is at the school. I know! Seriously, why not try a menage a trois? <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say that. He can at least be a voyeur and just watch. He just mm-hmm. needs to be nearby. I was thinking keep him on the other side of the wall, but okay. Yeah, I mean, come on, he's of the age where he'd be watching this stuff, so why not? He doesn't have to participate. You're the one arguing for romance, Stuart, and then you bring in the threesome. <laughs> hey, I'm just saying, if sex is that important, there are ways around it. Why couldn't he make an ice condom? There's things you can try. I thought that same thing. I thought when they kissed, maybe they were going to reveal, because they kissed for a short time, that he had, like, frozen his lips or something. Like, yes, my mind went there. Ice condom. But if they had gone with my idea of Rogue being part of the cure, they could have ended this with her actually having control of her powers and when she can use it or not. They could have actually written themselves out of that. And instead, they have this very unsatisfying thing in which she proclaims she wanted to do this so that she can have sex with Bobby. Uh, yeah. She wanted that, right? Okay, sure. Hey, it's not just men who have a libido. She may well have wanted that. You don't think that taking away her powers to impress her first crush is a naive thing to do? Her first crush and her second crush and her third crush. And her power is to kill people by taking their life force? Yeah, great. This wasn't just something Bobby couldn't come to terms with. It wasn't like you said the boyfriend who said you're ugly and she gets a nose job. I just want you guys to go on record. You like that Magneto is humanized and you like that she is humanized. You think this is the right choice. I don't have a problem with Magneto. For a Hollywood movie, it makes sense to me. That's a thing in Hollywood. You take away their power because you're going to want to bring them back and you could always give them their power back. You have Wolverine cut off his head. It's a little harder to bring him back. Marvel somehow pulled that off but in the comics, but in movie land that's a little bit tougher. Rogue, it still does unsettle me. Yes, I've stated where I fall on the mutant cure debate, but it's a tough one. And yeah, it doesn't settle right with me because it is a tough issue. And I am right there on the same page with you, Jacob. I think that Magneto being depowered is a good Hollywood ending. Rogue, I am kind of upset that they betrayed her character the same way they betrayed Cyclops in this movie by basically shoving her off. And Jean, and Professor X, (laughs) and Mystique. Mystique. I'm not talking about everybody they died or depowered. Keep going, because just about everyone got a raw deal out of The Last Stand. Except for Storm. (laughs) The only one I wouldn't have minded getting a raw deal. 
But I just think that I don't have a problem with it for the reason you seem to, Stuart. I don't think that it was such a horrible thing to do, and I don't find it quite so one note of a decision. I think that Rogue had a lot of reasons and a lot of guilt about her power to begin with. So I don't see it as black and white as you do as to why she did it, and because I don't see it that way, I'm okay with it, but I still wish they hadn't done it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear, and they did shoot it two different ways. On the DVD, they show you the alternate version where she says, I couldn't go through with it, this is me, accept it or not, and he says, okay, and takes her gloved hand. And they played it both ways, and I even watched that with director commentary, because I wanted to know, and his sniveling last comment was, he's like, yeah, at least this way they get to have sex. (laughs) Well, like I said, least romantic man in Hollywood. Don't ever give him a romantic comedy, because clearly he just doesn't have have the feel for what romantic longing is. Yeah, but they're teenagers. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing I like is... That's my point. They're going to screw a couple times and break up. And then she's going to be wondering what it was all about. Yeah, but teenagers are impulsive. They're like that. So like, hey, what if teenagers were superheroes too? How would they act? They're still going to have those normal things. They're still going to look for a way to screw each other. And they just got to get around this weird mutant power that she's going to kill them when they do it. Yeah, but Jacob, I would side with you on that one if that had been at all in the movie, anywhere in it. You're really projecting at that point. I think it's implied enough because they're teenagers that's all the implication it needs in the second film wolverine even says how do you guys and then he kind of fades off he's not going to say how do you guys kiss <laughs> i mean that's what he was implying how do you guys do it yeah i wish they hadn't done it because i like rogue as a character i feel rogue deserves more i also saw the alternate take i like the alternate take better i like my leech idea best but That way it's the best of both worlds. But I guess you can't have easy decisions in the X-Men movie world. This was all about hard decisions. Rogue made a hard decision. It's one I wish for the character hadn't been made. But hey, none of these people are coming back again. There were no more sequels. Everything else went to prequel land because the cast was too expensive. So if this was the last time we ever saw her character, I was fine with either decision. I'm pro-choice cure. (laughs) It does leave us our parting shot is with Wolverine. He's not a teacher. Is he going to really stick around? He's kind of like hanging out like, yeah, uh, now what? Gene's dead. X is dead. I kind of know who I am. Uh, What am I doing? According to Singer, and I didn't get this, but when I was listening to the X-Men 2 commentary, after he leaves Stryker behind, he had just become part of the school right there. He decided these were the people to whom he was connected. No, that was clear. That was what his monologue was about. But now they're all dead. But there's still the school. There's still all the new students. It looks like it's fall term. Everybody's coming in. You got Leech. He's going to be a PE teacher. <laughs> PE, okay. That's, you're getting, now you're getting to where I'm at. Like, what can he really teach them? Okay, PE. I got it. Although you'd hope he wouldn't get near Leech, because if his healing power was turned off by Leech, would his body possibly start rejecting the adamantium and have some real problems? Leech has got to go. I'm telling you. I could answer that, and I don't want to be that geeky. Oh, answer it. I got to know now. <laughs> yes, because with Lady Deathstrike from the second film in the comic, they had to use magic to be able to get the adamantium to stick to her bones because she doesn't have a healing factor. I've got to wonder, would his claws just kind of like fall out of his wrist? Because those claws, they're actual bone in his arm. So I, I got to wonder what would happen to that. Instead, we know that he's going to be the only one coming back next time. Because he's Hugh Jackman, bitch. That's why we know he's coming back. He started off as the newbie. You said he was the star minted in part one. Well, how right you were, much to the detriment of Anna Paquin, Jean-Luc Picard, 
Cyclops. <laughs> but Jean-Luc has a trap door. There is a way for Jean-Luc to return. Uh, allegedly, from this nonsensical scene that I waited through long, long credits to watch. <laughs> Those words of long credits. Who's Moira? Whose body is he inhabiting? What is she doing? You said Scotland. What is this? In an early scene in the movie, Professor X is teaching a class, and he talks about ethics. If we didn't get that this movie is about ethical decisions, there's actually a monologue where Professor X is in front of class saying, when is it okay to use our powers? When is it the right time to do what we can do? One of the things he talks about is Dr. Moira McTaggart, but he mentions Dr. Moira McTaggart is caring for a brain-dead patient and that Xavier has the power to transfer someone's consciousness into that body and would it be okay to take someone who, say, was terminally ill with cancer and put their consciousness into this body? So you have a consciousness with a dying body and a living body with no consciousness is it ethically right to put a consciousness in that body to save a life and i guess for xavier the answer was yes if it's my life because i'm going right in (laughs) (laughs) well and you know what that comatose body was supposed to be i do i listened to the commentary i know yes what is it it's supposed to be the comatose body of charles xavier's twin who became brain dead because Xavier like sucked all the energy out with his psychic forces when they were in the womb. Huh? So that's nothing I would have known by watching. No, I didn't even know that. The way you would have known is they had filmed a scene that said P Xavier. So it was going to be his brother whose first name, Peter, Paul, something Xavier. So you would have known it was a Xavier if they'd left that shot in. And then they would have explained next time it was his twin brother. And it kind of makes sense because who else would have the finances to keep a brain dead person alive for what, 70 years, but other than someone who could build that mansion and why the bodies in Scotland is a little beyond me, <laughs> but nonetheless, well, because her Moira's last name is McTaggart. So she must be Scottish, right? <laughs> she can never leave. It's the wonderful <laughs> back door where now they can have a professor X with or without Patrick. Mm, I see. Yes, they were plotting what to do next. Okay, so his twin brother, and that's being kept in Scotland by Moira. <laughs> like, why does Moira hold on to a invalid Patrick Stewart? Moira, she's a geneticist, expert in mutant affairs. She won a Nobel Prize for mutant research, but she's not a mutant. She's just a really smart scientist. And she went to postgraduate school at Oxford with Charles Xavier, where they met and fell in love and at one time were engaged to get married, but that didn't work out. So they're longtime friends. She helped create your favorite thing, Stuart, Cerebro. Her and Charles got together and came up with the technology for that, at least in the comic book. I know in the first film, I believe they said Magneto helped, but... She has on-again, off-again relationships with Xavier. Oh, okay. Not that you get any of that in the film. (laughs) No, but it's probably all what the new film is about. Yeah, Moira's in the new film, as is Magneto, and given that in every film but this one, even Generation X, we've seen Cerebro, I'm guessing we'll see Cerebro. I hope not. It seems like that would be what the plot would be about, or at least the subplot would be how it all got created. I mean, it's an origin story. So everything that we've seen culminate here has got to have a starting point. I guess they should have just named it X-Men Cerebro Begins. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we'll find this out when it comes out, but I don't know how much of a prequel it is. I think it might be a reimagining, but we'll have to find that out when the movie comes out. Two weeks. So at this point, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend X-Men The Last Stand? Jacob. Look, Stuart, you're right about a lot of the story points in this film. They don't make sense or they're weak. There's not a whole lot of character development. Things seem to be a mess and all over the place. I, we talked about Angel. He flies in and flies out for a couple of scenes. We don't know what happens to Leech. It's all over the place. There's themes there. They're not the most well-developed or perhaps, in some opinions, not developed in the best way. But yeah, I'm going to recommend this one. This is the X-Men film that I've watched the most because, okay, it's pop culture trash. It's a popcorn action film. I like those character moments from the other films and they're able to do something that you don't see a lot of times in superhero comics where they really develop the characters. But I also like the explosive action and I'm glad I got one X-Men film where they have that, where it's a whole team of mutants fighting the X-Men. I mean, at some point, do I want every X-Men film to be like that? No, but I want at least one that where I could just sit back, turn my brain off and enjoy it. And I enjoy this film. I like the action, you know, the danger room scene. I know it's fake, but Wolverine lighting a cigar on this burned up car. I like those moments. So, yeah, I recommend X3 The Last Stand. Best of the series. It's the most rewatchable of the series for me. If I want to take in all aesthetics and story development and all that, no, maybe not. But from being able to rewatch it, enjoy it, I've seen this one probably 10 times. Wow. Stuart. Well, it's better than Generation X. <laughs> a lot. I'll be honest with you. There's a lot that this movie does that it gets right. And given that it had such a difficult production history, it is very well tied in with what Singer was doing in the first two movies. It does bring a lot of things to a closure. What I struggle with is that the closure is so personally unsatisfying that the ending for most of these characters that I have grown to like is such a downer. And maybe some of that is my wrong expectations and I should accept the movie that's given to me. And then some of it is that I think, no, you know what? Brett Ratner did not understand this material and he did not close it the way that we would want to see it closed. I'm on the fence, but you know what? I like these characters. I like these situations. There are good moments. There is good action. I will give it the faintest of recommends. But I wouldn't say it's very rewatchable, and I certainly wouldn't say it's the most enjoyable. It is very, very sad. Well, I'm going to make it three for three and recommends on this film, but yet totally disagree with both of you. I like this film. It's the only one of the trilogy here that I had seen more than once coming into this. The one I've seen the most is actually the next one, Wolverine. I've probably seen that one 12 times, and it's the most recent. With this one, I'd seen a few times, and yes, walking out, I was satisfied with the action. But when I first saw it, again, like every of these X-Men movies, I walked out feeling like the characters had been cheated. Especially Cyclops, and to some degree Rogue, and certainly Professor X, even. I kind of felt like there were some cheats here, but watching it this time... I went in with some meta-knowledge that I know people claim this one was dumb. This one didn't live up to Singer's legacy. Brett Ratner came in and dumbed it down. And that was something, Jacob, you said in your summation here, and it's something Stuart seems to echo. It's something I disagree with, though. 
I think that this one is unfairly maligned as being dumb. This is not Michael Bay's X-Men. There is a lot of intelligent debate here. Is it a little bit more ham-handed than it was done in the Singer movies? Yes. But there's still so much more here than I will ever get out of a Fantastic Four or a G.I. Joe or Transformers or... So many other superhero movies that I'm sure we're going to watch. Hey, don't count your chickens for the hatch. We're, we're watching that one next, aren't we, Transformers? <laughs> yes, we are. I mean, give me some hope. I'm the newbie <laughs> on that one. I think that this movie is a lot smarter than your average summer explosion flick. And it has the best action of the three. I agree with you, Arnie. I totally agree. I will say what Jacob didn't. I say this is the best of the three. I won't agree with that. (laughs) But I agree with you. It's the reason why I gave it a faint recommend. There is enough intelligence. There is enough of the chess game for me to recommend. But I don't know. That ending's tough. And you guys seem to be much more okay with it than I'll ever be. That last stand is not a victory for anybody. And I just want to say, when I say it's pop culture trash, I'm talking about relative to the other x-men films it's spades (laughs) above transformers or anything michael bay has done i just want to make that clear i do not lump this in with the michael bay film okay yeah i don't see ratner as being all style and no substance but i do feel like when back to the wall he will go for the easy actiony answer to complicated questions that need a much more thoughtful approach i think we just all could agree we're just very happy that professor x didn't wake up and go can't you Is that Chris Tucker? That is. Yes. Okay. And that joke took a long time for me to process. Well, when's the last time Chris Tucker was in anything? (laughs) I think Rush Hour 3 or 4 or wherever they're at in that series. (laughs) Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you again for joining me for X-Men First Class. And we'll be back next week for a prequel, X-Men Origins Wolverine. And don't forget to vote. We're taking your opinion, and we're only going to see and review one of them. Super 8, the new Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, I don't know what it is, small town alien, close encounters, Cloverfield thing. Or Green Lantern, another superhero movie from a different universe, though, from the DC universe. Also outer space stuff from, like, Super 8, where we don't know what's going on. (laughs) At least with Green Lantern, we know we get Ryan Reynolds in a suit where you could see his toes for some reason. If you've seen the pictures on the internet, I don't know. Hey, they recently released some revamped photos. They've touched up the suit a little bit. It looks a little less ridiculous. Apparently, they didn't learn from releasing early production shots like with the Hulk during the whole Super Bowl fiasco. You gotta wait till those effects are done, but we'll see. It's Ryan Reynolds. I like him. I think he's good for the role. Let me just say this. My wife's already bugging me to see Green Lantern the same way she did to see X-Men 2. Because of Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) Uh, You gotta keep a tight leash on that girl. (laughs) I guess as long as she lets you see your Tomb Raider 3 and 4, you're alright. I can honestly say I would never watch that movie under any circumstances other than to support our listeners, and if that's what they choose, then god damn it, I will go to see that horrible, horrible looking movie, which I predict will be the worst superhero movie of the year. Much worse than Thor, Captain America, or X-Men. It will be the absolute bomb of the year, but I'll go. And I will say this. We will not ever do it if you don't vote it. Whichever one does not win will never be now playing. And so we have a DC Universe logo mocked up. Green Lantern could be the gap tooth there. Or if Super 8 spawns a franchise, it could be the one that now playing never gets to do. 
So vote, but vote wisely. Consider it. Which is the lesser of two evils? It's like X-Men 3 all over again when you hit that vote button. I think Ryan Reynolds with magical jewelry is definitely the greater evil. (laughs) You can vote now at nowplayingpodcast.com and also at nowplayingpodcast.com. If you scroll to the bottom, the vote link's at the top. If you scroll to the bottom, there's another important little link, a donate link. We like that button. Let me tell what you. What does it do? What it does. I actually, good good question, Stuart, because I wanted to say, I, I think we come here a lot and we tell them what it does for them. I want to take a minute and tell you what it does for us. We recently had some astounding success all because of our listeners. I want to thank every listener because we were number one in iTunes with our Marvel Misfits series. By number one, I mean we were actually the number one audio movies podcast, which is unbelievable. It was flabbergasting to open up iTunes and see us there in the large 200 by 200 pixel logo and be like, we are ahead of Kevin Pollock and ahead of Kevin Smith and ahead of a lot of other people named Kevin. I couldn't believe it. And as a result, our downloads went up a lot and our shows aren't tiny. We try to put them out in decent quality. A lot of disk space used, a lot of bandwidth used. These things cost money. The more listeners we have, actually, the more it costs us to do the show. And so we talk about Stuart's Jujubees. We talk about the theater tickets, but there are some just basic operating costs from now playing. And without listeners like you who support our show, we couldn't do the show, period. We couldn't afford it without your help. So we thank you listeners for donating. And as our way of saying thank you, we did some extra podcasts that we're giving to those who donate $10 or more. Jaws series, which is already completely out. All the people who've donated $10 or more in the past few weeks have them. And Poltergeist, we just released the last Poltergeist. And after Memorial Day, those are going into the vault with Chucky. People email us. They say, give me Chucky. We say no. People email us, say, we'll give you $50 for I Know Who Killed Me. I say, yeah, but you won't get our review. We'll take your money. But we put them in the lockbox because that's what we said we're doing. So I'm not saying we will never, ever release them again, but there's that very real possibility we will never, ever release them again. So donate before Memorial Day, because the very next day, I had to do it with Chucky. So basically, they got a week. You got a week to come up with 10 bucks or more. Good luck. Just skip a movie this weekend. Pay for now playing. Thank you for your support. I mean that. Thank you for everything, for voting for us on iTunes, for making us number one, for your money. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with Wolverine and the Bone Claws. We'll talk to you then. first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another X-Men film, leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's X-Men First Class. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. And individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chitting millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? I think I have needs! I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru! I want out of here! I want to have the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Carlos, and Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still live? But honestly, after Singer turned in to basically walked... I don't know baseball well enough for that metaphor, so let me start over. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Two walked pictures. Huh? Walked in two hits, two runs. I don't know what you're trying to go for there. <laughs> there was a fly ball with the with the yeah. It was a, it was a you're field goal. <laughs> All right. Uh, then let's record an insert for earlier in the brief scene that Jacob talked about with the de aging makeup. And I pity the editor who has to squeeze it in there, but here it is. I want the twelve inch arms. I don't want. Would Juggernaut, I kind of want the Tyler Mane. I want the Rock. I want the 12-inch arms. 12-inch arms? 12-inch around. 24-inch pythons. Yeah, 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 yeah. 12 inches. Did you ever watch Hulk Hogan (laughs) wrestling in the air? Yeah, yeah, 12 is not, that's average size, actually. Oops. I got 12-inch arms. Yeah. Well, my pickup was unintentionally a pickup (laughs) blooper. (laughs) 